This podcast is supported by an educational grant from CMR Surgical Limited. To learn more about CMR Surgical, please visit cmrsurgical.com. Welcome to Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed, a bi-weekly podcast in collaboration with the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, focusing on expert interviews to explore the insights, habits, and expertise of individuals both in and outside of medicine. My name is Dr. Kara King, and I am your host. I hope you all are having a great week and maybe getting a little peak of warmer weather. We have a fascinating guest on our show today who is doing amazing work within medical education. I've been wanting to get her on our show since I heard her speak at our Cleveland Clinic Grand Rounds a few months ago, which was amazing. Her name is Dr. Helen Morgan, and she's a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Michigan. She has focused her career on creating supportive learning environments that challenge diverse learners to their full potential. She's currently co-investigator and program evaluation lead on the $1.8 million AMA Reimagining Residency Grant for APCO, entitled Right Resident, Right Program, Ready Day One. She has incredible insight on diversification of the physician workforce, how to optimize residency interviews, including the benefits of a standardized letter of evaluation, and one of my favorite topics, the integration of coaching within medical education. We hope you enjoy. So today on Unscrubbed, we are incredibly excited to have Dr. Helen Morgan join us today, and she is calling in today from Ann Arbor. So welcome, Helen. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Kara. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I went to Michigan State for my undergrad. And we have a big weekend coming up. It's a really big weekend tomorrow. <laughs> I can't wait. Is it in, is it in Ann Arbor? Is no, it no, it's in, the, it's, it's in East Lansing. So I think it's going to go well for my team. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. We're, we're kind of undefeated this year. So I'm pretty <laughs> sure I'm pretty sure it's going to be God. It's, it's a good fight, if nothing else. That's right. So all that aside, <laughs> I know um, a large passion of yours has been the problems with the residency application process and really how there's become, it's become increasingly problematic on a million different levels, which I can't wait for you to explain. I want to start out a little bit about how you fell into this niche, this, this passion that you have in regard to your research. How did you initially get become interested in this area? So it's it's a great question because my original passion has always been on the transition to residency in general. So preparing learners to get ready for day one of residency. And so for the first, you know, first part of my academic career, I really focused more on residency preparation, like how do you get senior medical students ready? But the residency application process has become such a challenging monster that it has kind of taken over so much of the life energy and the the time of the last year of medical school that if we don't tackle that first then it's so much more challenging to even think about the transition to residency because the whole process takes so much mental energy from the learners and from residency program directors and kind of everybody involved. And so that's how I started working on the application process because it just, there's so many problems that need to be fixed there. And you're right. You know, when I think about residency applications, you, know, you kind of get into this groove of the way it's always been is the way it's going to be. And sometimes when we get into that state of automaticity, it's hard to like stop and have a new lens on things. And I think it's really interesting when you say like the application process probably like seeps its way into this transition period of the first year. And so 
starting to find that root cause of where all the trouble begins is is a really unique re- unique view. And I congratulate you on taking a step back and looking at that. Well, the the really interesting thing is, you know, I applied for residency a long time ago. It was in two thousand. What year was it? It was 2001 where I applied for residency. And so it was a long time ago, but I applied to like 12 or 13 programs. And I remember not getting an interview at two of the programs, but the vast majority of the programs that I applied to interviewed me. And so it was so stressful for me back then, but that's not even close to the stress that our learners now are going through, where they're feeling this pressure to apply to 50 or 70 or 90 programs and then receiving, you know, far fewer interviews and a much smaller percent of interviews from those programs. And then the programs also, of course, are receiving so many more applications. So they're having a hard time deciding who to interview. And so the stress has become more prolonged um, in terms of how many months of stress there are. And it has become so much more all-consuming because there's also you know, when I matched on match day, it was a different era. We all stood on the stage and we opened our envelopes on stage because there was a very high chance that we were going to match at our number one, number two, or number three programs. The percent of learners who are matching at one of their top three programs keeps going down. And so there's a lot of implications for if you match at your number five or number your, your number seven program, that potentially geographically is not where you want to match, where you don't have family support, your um, partner might not have uh, job opportunities. There's a lot of different stressors that are adding to something that has gotten a lot worse in the last decade. Yeah, ab- absolutely agree. And you gave an incredible grand rounds at the Cleveland Clinic. If anybody's listening and wants an incredible grand rounds, please call Helen for this talk. But you talked about how the average number of applications per candidate right now is something like 68. Is that true? Well, for, there's there's newest data from this application cycle in OB-GYN at 72. So it went up by 10% more. Like you keep wondering how high this number can go. It's an average of 72 applications per applicant. Okay, that's insane. Like when you think about the time, when you think about the money, just from the application, applicant side. And then just like you said, you flip it and you think about the different academic center side, like we receive something like four or 500 or 600 or something asinine applications. And and then like you've spoken about the metrics that you go through these applications with aren't actually good metrics, but you don't know where to start. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great point is that the metrics that residency programs are forced to use don't predict success in residency. And I think people lose track of that. But, you know, step one score does not predict success in residency. Whether or not you get an honors on your clerkship, that also does not predict success in residency. These are all just metrics that you can filter quickly or you can look through quickly when you're looking at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of applications. And, you know, we did something new this year for at least the clinic where our program director, Dr. Vicki Reed, ended up recruiting a whole bunch of faculty to each of and gave each of us 20 applications and told us to go through our 20 and pick our number one and push that through. And I thought that was an interesting way to look at things. And, and not that someone didn't review the other 19, but it was just a way to first go through these with a, with a fine tooth comb. You know, it's hard when you're getting, given a couple hundred, but 20, we felt like we could get, get through. That takes a whole lot of manpower from the faculty to go, to go through that. Yeah. Yep. I think many residency programs 
have decided that they can't just have their program director and their associate program director looking through all the applications. They have to recruit a team. The the challenge, of course, because when I was reviewing applications, you're looking at these applications that are amazing. Like they're so impressive. The learners have done so much. And this year with COVID, they've shown so much resilience. But the main challenge for me as I was looking through these applications was I happened to be reviewing a cohort that were all uh, at a, uh, on the East Coast. So if somebody went to medical school on the East Coast, undergrad on the East Coast, what's the chance they want to move to Ann Arbor, Michigan? And, right. and you can't tell. You can't tell who really wants to move to Ann Arbor, Michigan. You just think maybe this is what maybe, but you can't. You you just don't know. And so do you do you aim for somebody and hope that they secretly want to move to the Midwest? Or is there no way that they would want to move to the Midwest because their family and the, their support is all on the East Coast? It's just really hard to tell. And it's almost like a state of panic from the medical students, right? Because they're like, my 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 friend over here is applying to 80 programs. Like, I can't apply to 15. That's ludicrous. So there's it's almost like a state of panic from the applicant side, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the whole medical education training process is hard, but the prospect of not matching yes. is so scary. And we can understand that is a genuine fear or not matching in a program where you will thrive. I mean, those are legitimate reasons to be scared. And so you can understand why students feel this pressure to overapply. And and they don't know where they have a chance. You know, there's not a lot of transparency in terms of I should apply to these programs because I have a good chance of getting an interview here. It's just a matter of checking boxes right now. Exactly right. And one area that I've heard you speak about, which I thought was really fascinating because I didn't know this was going on, is the standardized letter of recommendation. So I'm the associate program director here of the uh, Minimally Invasive GYN Surgery Fellowship. And so I've recently went through our 80 applicants that we got. And it's amazing how you can read between the lines of these letters of rec, right? And then there's these studies that come up about male versus female letters of rec and then different racial disparities between different letter writers. And it makes so much sense to have a standardized letter. So can you talk to me a bit about that? And is that formally being rolled out with an OBGYN? There's so many different components of the application package that have biases or inequities. And I think letters of rec is, is, is one of the more pressing ones, because I think many of us went through a time when we all learned, you know, the bigger the name of the person who wrote the letter, the better. So you want somebody who's kind of famous, but at the same time, you want somebody who knows you really well. It's setting these really hard standards for the learner. And just like you mentioned, we know that there are gender biases. We know that there are racial biases. And there's also inequities in terms of letter writers from academic programs know how to write a letter of rec because we do them all the time. Like we know how we're supposed to write them. And I think we've all reviewed applications from learners who have letters of rec from, you know, hardworking clinical docs who don't do this all the time. And maybe they're really short or maybe they don't have those like magic code words that we know to include in there. And so it's, it's really not a very fair system. And so this year, um, our specialty um, and part of our APCO Reimagining Residency Grant decided to pilot a standardized letter of evaluation. And the idea was to try to create a more standardized rubric for programs to be able to look through. And it takes away the flowery, you know, if the person says, 
I'm strongly trying to recruit them into the program. Is that is that code for this one's actually really good versus this is an extraordinary learner? So, so really trying to objectify or not objectify, provide some objective measures in a subjective process. And so we're, we're really excited by how many learners um, were able to get a standardized letter of evaluation this residency application cycle and then thinking about how do we make it larger than just a pilot for years moving forward so that it really is a level playing field. And, and we really, uh, John Dalrymple really led that aspect and he felt very strongly that he wanted to make sure that equity was the North Star of everything that we were doing. So we didn't want to use metrics that were normative. Like we didn't want to say, how does this learner compare to other learners? Because that's not what it's about. It's about, you know, a true competency-based, criterion-based metrics. Like where is the learner? Where where do they need to go? Because that's what this is all supposed to be about. Man, you, you talk about like the North Star and why we're all here. And somehow it gets lost, I yeah. feel like, in the mix. And so I really love you bringing us back to that. And then you talk about these like magical code words. And I am so guilty, I'm going to be honest, of writing those magical code words and reading for those magical code words, right? Like if you have a program who doesn't say we're actively, you know, actively trying to keep so-and-so at our program, then I'm like, oh God, then why aren't you? I'll call them like, why aren't you actively trying to recruit them? And sometimes that doesn't mean anything, but I think this is a, a really big deal. And I think Gynecologic Oncology piloted this this year. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. So the Gynecology Oncology uh, Fellowship piloted it. uh, And emergency medicine has had this in place for decades, maybe a decade at least. And then that makes my brain always go to why are, why do we get siloed sometimes? Like I feel like sometimes like different subspecialties silo, but again, that that makes a lot of sense. So that's something I'm definitely going to bring back to my MIGS world about hopefully maybe thinking about integrating in the coming years, because I think that's a really, really great idea. Yeah. And, and I think so much about this has been challenging to change because it's hard to coordinate big like decision-making groups. And that's where I think we've been so fortunate that we have this grant where APCO and CREOG are working together. You know, Maya Hamoud is our PI of the grant and she can move mountains in terms of um, convincing people to work together in a very productive way. But it's really hard. There's so many reasons to keep the status quo, which is why we always try to remind ourselves, what are we trying to do? Why are we trying to do it? And what's the problem? Because otherwise, you just make a lot of change, but did it actually make anything better? My gosh, you're so dead on. It's so much easier just to go along with the way things have always been. But sometimes just like calling out, I've heard you say this, oh, we don't mind me repeating it, calling out the BS. Like this BS is there and taking from Dr. Linda Bradley, making good trouble. Like sometimes that's the route that you need to take to, to actually change the culture and and keep your overall true north at the center. Yeah, yeah, yep. And um, I, I think we were you were planning on talking about this, but the whole idea of what is the problem with having this you know whole thing with so many applications per applicant and residencies receiving all of these applications. You know, some people can say, well, I mean, so is that a problem? So you get to apply to a lot of programs. Is that is that a problem? But but we have to really think about what are the fundamental problems that this is causing and and race is is a real I and mean, we have to sound the alarm about that we know that having diverse physicians is beneficial to our patients to our teams to the learners 
yet our profession is becoming less diverse because partly because of what's happening with the application process. So we have to sound the alarm about that. I love that. And I love that transition. So Helen, tell me more about that. So yeah, so why is it bad to let applicants apply to as many programs as they want? What, what harm is that actually causing? So because residency programs are using these metrics that are easy to filter, and because these metrics, we know that they have racial biases in them, we know that less diverse applicants are being invited to interview at programs. And we know that the in, in our specialty, the percent of Black or African-American residents has gone down in the past decade in a very scary way. I think it's down from about 12% to about 8%. I think our specialty used to lead the way in terms of being able to recruit diverse learners, but we're slipping and we have to fix it. And that significantly impacts patient care. Like you said, like, I've, and I've heard my colleagues of color say things like when patients go to them and they say, you know, I haven't had a, had a physician with my ethnic background, like that's a really big deal. It's hurting patients. And that's why we're all here. And so keeping that in mind and putting our feet to the ground and really making progress is, is really crucial to optimize patient care. Especially in 2021, like we know yes. that we need to improve our specialty and the outcomes in our specialty. And so why are our learners going in the wrong direction? Absolutely. And I know it's in all fields, but especially in OBGYN. My gosh, like obstetrical outcomes are just, I mean, in, in all areas, in GYN yeah. surgery, right? In, in laparoscopic hysterectomy rates, in like all areas of our field, it's just, it's huge that we need to, we need to make some real changes. So I want to talk about your grant. But before I jump into your grant, I want to talk a little bit about virtual interviews this year, because this was such a huge jump and change. And I know if we had said, you know, back in early 2020, we are going to change the virtual next year, I would have been like, we're absolutely not going to do that. That doesn't make any sense. We don't have the manpower or the IT capabilities to do that. And here we are. Yeah. And I loved the Viewpoint article in GMA talking about how the residency selection process is not fragile. That really resonated with me that we can sustain things. Talk to me about where you think we're going to move in the future with in-person versus virtual interviews independent of COVID. Yeah, no, I think year one, we were just surviving. And so we had to do virtual interviews because we were in the thick of it. And year two and, and, and next year, year three, I think will be really interesting to think about where we're going. I think many of us found it very challenging to think about going back to a time where medical students spent on average like eight to $10,000 on traveling costs. I, I mean, all of us, we love the in-person aspect of interviewing and people being able to come into our homes, into our, literally into our homes or into our um, hospitals. And, and we don't have that with the virtual interviews, but there was so much that we were able to gain from virtual interviews. And so um, I was very proud of our specialty in, you know, committing to that early on that we were going to do virtual interviews for everybody this year too. I think many people are grappling with should there be any in-person activities that are sponsored by the program? And that's a really complicated question with no easy answers because different residency programs have different pressure points in terms of how they recruit and who they want to recruit. But at the same time, we know from an equity standpoint that traveling is financially challenging and there are so many pressure points on the applicant that trying to decrease as many pressure points as possible is the, is the most equitable thing to do. Yeah, I think those are really great points. Question for you. And I think I may know the answer, but I'm just brainstorming. 
Would there ever be any room from... Because I've heard people talking about this with doing virtual first rounds, like a hybrid model, like a virtual first round and then an in-person second. I mean, I... I Because I know... I mean, you can't have a mix right off the bat, I feel like, because in-person, I feel like is going to benefit from virtual, right? Because there's a connection that you get with in-person. But would there ever be room for like a first round virtual, second round in-person hybrid type model? I think that... In order to answer that question, there is a we, we do have to think about what is the problem that we're trying to solve, because yeah. that would create a lot more stress <laughs> for the learners. And with yeah. everything that we're doing with our grant, we're we're trying to think about how do we get to the root cause so that we can try to decrease the stress for the learners and also stress for the programs to have to do yes. two rounds of interviews. I mean. You know, there've been all these interesting financial calculations about how much it costs for a residency program to take their faculty members' time to do these interviews. It's thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And, and so that's why one of the one of the more kind of interesting, controversial, disruptive ideas is should we have an early round match where we could get some of the learners who at that certain set of learners who know know where they want to go could they get out of the match by matching earlier? They can then focus the rest of their final year of medical school on preparing for residency, finding support for their, their partners, childcare, all of those things. And then for the learners who need to be part of the regular match, you have so many people who are out of the match. Um, so the numbers are so much more manageable for programs. And so we're trying to think about those sorts of solutions because there are so many different ways that we can put more onus on the learner, but that's yes. not necessarily the best way. You know, so many different supplemental essays. Should we, you know, make them do this and make them do that? And and it, it doesn't seem like that's the right group to put more onus on. You're exactly right. No, that makes that makes perfect sense. And that's where my brain was going to. And there's just been some rumblings of that within the within the MIGS world. And I could see, I love how you're saying, well, what's the like what's the objective? Like go to the very end point. Like, is that gonna actually change the end point? And if it's not, then don't stress both sides. So that, that's a good perspective. talk about your grant. Your grant is so incredible. Like it's going to change the culture of interviews. This is so incredibly exciting. So can you talk to me a bit about the main objectives of this grant and, and how you're enrolling this? Yeah. So, so we were able to get a $1.7 million grant from the AMA for a reimagining residency. And um, our grant title is Right Resident, Right Program, Ready Day One. And as I mentioned, Maya Hamoud is the PI of our grant. And then we're very fortunate. We have, you know, uh, leadership from uh, CREOG, from the, the chair, the past chair, Erica Banks, Karen George, uh, Mark Woodland. We have leadership from APCO. We have Nadine Katz, who's our current APCO president. We have Arthur Allendorf, who's our um, upcoming APCO president. So we're very fortunate that really all of the big med ed bodies of OBGYN said, yes, we need to do this. And it's been so wonderful to be a part of this, to see how our specialty is leading the way and leading the conversations during this time when we know that everybody needs to make some change. So we have two main objectives. The first part is to improve the application process. And then the second part is to improve the transition to residency. 
And so we, you know, kind of had to focus a little bit more energy on the application process over the first two years of the grant because there was so much happening with COVID. But we're really excited that we can finally now spend some time on what was originally what my love of really the transitional residency and how do you improve the transition for the learners. And so let me talk a little bit about the second part and then we can talk uh, then go about the application process. So we're creating a curriculum for that would be available to all learners. So all incoming OB-GYN um, residents would have access to this curriculum because there's a such a variety and a diversity of resources that our students have right now. I'm at University of Michigan. I direct our residency prep courses. Every graduating medical student at Michigan takes a four or an eight-week specialty-specific residency prep course prior to graduating. Wow. And there are other programs or other medical schools where they don't have anything like this that they can offer their students. And so it's really about how do you create the resources that all incoming OB-GYN residents need um, so that they can begin residency, you know, confident and, and ready to hit the ground running. But, you know, everybody starts residency with different strengths and different areas of development. And so the second part is to also create uh, coaching and learning communities to really help individuals figure out what are their goals for when they start residency. Because some people are going to be amazing technically. They're going to become MIGS fellows. And some <laughs> people are like, you know, my communication, my ability to connect with patients is my superpower, but I need to work on my technical skills. So how do we help learners figure out what their goals are as they start residency? The first part of our grant is really, you know, looking at the application process. And so we've been very fortunate that we've had so much great coordination between CREAG and APCO. So I think many of us are familiar with the standardized offer dates that we have in our specialty, which is so great. We just had it on October 19th, where I think 90% of residency programs um, released their initial uh, interview offers. Because when you talk to the, I'm sure you've seen on social media, yeah. um, all of these learners who are driving or scrubbed in a case and they receive an interview offer and then 15, 20, 40 minutes later, the interview offer is gone because they didn't sign up fast enough. And that's, I mean, no. that's, that's, that's dumb. I mean, that's, there's <laughs> no other word other to describe and that's just not fair. And that's not, that's dumb. It is. And yeah. They're like, eliminate that. That's that's amazing. I, and I know that has taken so much stress off both sides. I mean, again, simple things that you're like, oh, yeah, why weren't we doing this? Yeah. It makes so much sense when you do it. Yeah. There have been some studies that of medical students entering procedural fields, I think 20% had uh, an interview offer that I mean, it was 10 to 20% um, had an interview offer that they weren't able to get because they didn't sign up in, in time. And that's that's just crazy. That's ludicrous. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. that's embarrassing that we yeah. that was even a that was even our idea of a fair a fair release of, of interviews. So oh my gosh, I cannot wait to dive into these learning communities that you're talking about right now. So I love your second objective of what as well as with this with this national curriculum. And when I was reading about it, hearing about learning communities really <laughs> perked my interest. Um, so I have my master's in medical education and I and I love this this area of development. And I also do a lot of surgical coaching. So this thought of coaching is really blowing my mind because I didn't realize that that was part of it as well. Can you expand a little bit about what you mean about communities and how you're integrating coaching in this population? I think that many of us who've been involved in medical education for, for years has realized how transformative coaching can be. 
because, you know, the medical education community really embraced competency-based medical education, the idea that people are moving along this journey differently. But there have been so many challenges in terms of how do you help the learner move along this competency-based continuum in their own way. And so coaching has been such a wonderful way of thinking about helping the learner to figure out where they are instead of telling them where they are, but helping them figure out where they are so that they can then work on how do they achieve the competencies. And so this year, we're going to pilot a program where certain residency programs will have a coach that will be trained in this process. Because coaching, it's, I, am, I know you know, like it's, it's different. It's different than mentorship. It's different than advising. I've been trained as an executive coach and it's been so wonderful. To, it's a different way of thinking about working with individuals. And so we envisioned this would not be the program director, would because because that's a different power dynamic, but but somebody in their residency program where you can um, really where they can meet with the coach, work with the coach, define their goals, and then iterate them. You know, ideally through the first year of residency and then kind of all through their residency training. And then the learning communities is really about how do we intentionally create the support and the resources so that new residents feel like they are part of the community. And we know that there are lots of different ways to be intentional about this. If we reach out to newly matched residents in March and start talking to them about learning goals, that's not what they need at that moment. They are thinking about housing. Am I gonna like my co-interns? <laughs> exactly. The last six months of medical school before I start residency. And so exactly. really being intentional about how can we create resources? How can we create support? How can we help programs to create that sense of community so that interns can rely on each other and on their programs during this transition? I am in love with this. And I love how you guys are being so thoughtful about the coaching aspect and like the flattened hierarchy part of it. And that if there's too much of a power dynamic, it's not going to be true coaching. And how right coaching is different than mentoring and sponsoring. And it's a true skill set that's that you have to you know, invest in faculty development to really master. I'm just curious. I'm not sure if you're how how invested you are in this specific part of the grant. But do you know how they're training their coaches by any chance? So we're going to do um, some training through the American Medical Association. So the AMA has been really excited about coaching and about how do you train academic coaches. That would be a little bit different than executive coaches, right? And, and I think many medical schools and many residency programs are getting excited by the idea of coaching, but we're all kind of doing the faculty development in a different way. Right. Um, and, and so that's part of our planning is how do we create the right coaching? So it's the right coaching for this transition process. Yeah, you nailed it, right? There's like developmental coaching and leadership coaching and executive coaching and surgical coaching. And there's not really an area that actually monitors like people who have actually been trained in coaching either. So so it's an interesting area of, of trying to control a little bit, I guess. Fantastic. So I want to move into what you alluded to earlier about your the optional early result acceptance program that your team is working on. Can you expand on that a little bit? So this was this was one of the more um, you know I think the exciting slash disruptive slash controversial um, parts of our grant because you know really getting again. I'm sorry about my dog. <laughs> For the fact that the dog is in the background, crawling a bit in. It's all good. Um, but um, but if we fundamentally want to decrease the number of applications per applicant, 
it's really hard for small measures to do that. I think that many people immediately say, well, why can't you just cap it? Why can't you just tell applicants you're not allowed to apply to more than 25 programs? It's really complicated. It, it, it's really, really complicated in terms of, is that the right answer for all of our applicants? And, and what harm can we do if we put just a blind cap on without being intentional about it? And I think there's a lot of harm that we could do for our IMG applicants, for some of our um, learners from medical schools that might not have as many resources. So a cap won't solve the problems that we're trying to solve. So then trying to think about how do we decrease the number of applications. And so that's how the idea of an early match came into place. Like we know that there are some learners who know exactly where they want to go. Not all learners, but some learners know exactly what specialty they want to go to and they know exactly where they want to go. And that might be for whatever reason. Um, maybe it's their home institution. Maybe it's uh, on the West Coast because they have a partner who has great job opportunities there. But if they know that they want to go there and that program wants them, then they don't have to apply to 40 programs. They don't have to take up 20 interviews if that's where they're ultimately going to go. And so it was an exciting way of thinking about would this work? Would stakeholders get on board? Would applicants want to do it? Would residency programs want to do it? And we, we sent a survey out last year and there was a resounding yes that, that the stakeholders were very interested in this process. I love this idea. And again, it makes so much sense. And with this idea, do you have like a proposed number or limit of applications within this early acceptance application phase? We asked the stakeholders that. We said, what would be the right number? And so we were looking at maybe applying that each learner could apply to five programs, that each residency program could fill up to 50% of their spots with learners from the early match. And that really seemed to be able to check the boxes in terms of would this solve the right problems. And so we were really excited by how many program directors were excited by this idea and how many learners said, yes, this would actually make sense. And there are learners who it doesn't make sense. If you need, if you need to decide which specialty, if you're not certain, if you want to see what's out there, then you'd be part of the regular match. And some people are worried that the regular match would become more competitive. But we, um, Abigail Winkle from NYU was the lead author on this paper that we just published in JAMA Network Open that we modeled it out and showed that the regular match would not be more competitive if we, if we move forward with this. This is incredibly exciting. And even though we're talking about primarily residence, residency matches, I think this applies so much to fellowship matching as well. Even though our numbers aren't as high, obviously, as the residency numbers, there's so many really great lessons to be learned with your work that can apply to really any application process within the medical system. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And the last topic that I wanted to bring up a little bit was about mentorship. Because I know you, you talk about mentorship a bit in really how to stop losing good talent, right? Early on, whether it be undergrad or medical students, residents. I'm curious, how do you recommend that people out, staff or fellows out, can be good mentors of medical students? It's a great question. It's amazing how just caring, <laughs> that sounds so overly simplistic. So many students are, are, are struggling, you know, medical school, has always been so hard, but medical school and COVID has been particularly hard. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's been so isolating for all of us. 
But for medical students, it's been even more isolating. And so in so many ways, if you if they feel that you genuinely care about them, uh, it, it, it's amazing how far that can go. And we're all busy. It's hard. We're all stretched in a many, many different ways with with work and kids and disruptive puppies. <laughs> but but I've always found that this is what charges your batteries ultimately, isn't it? That when we're so able true. to work closely with a student, when we're able to mentor a student, you know that this relationship is one that's a positive experience for both. I mean, it's amazing how much benefit can give for the rest of the day. I think your words really resonate deeply in that just being truly present sometimes is all they need, right? I feel like so many times I'm on my phone, I'm checking my pager, I'm checking my watch because we're accessible in 9,000 ways these days. But just truly, even just 10 minutes I found, just being present and like really seeing the student can actually completely change somebody's trajectory. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I had a student in clinic with me just a couple of weeks ago, and I, I, I don't often get medical students because we have residents and fellows here, a lot of them, but I got a medical student and my, my clinic was insane. I was seeing like 5 million people. I was running behind, but I was just trying to be present with my student as, as we went through, the, went through the morning. And we debriefed quickly, 10 minutes over lunch. And I thought she was gonna be like, that was crazy. That was terrible. Like, I don't know what just happened, but whatever I do, I do not want to go into gynecology. <laughs> And it was just, <laughs> which I wouldn't have blamed her. I'm not going to lie. But um, it was funny. We debriefed for 10 minutes and I, I thought she was doing fine. And that was that. But it was so nice. She emailed me later and she's like, Dr. King, I was hoping that maybe I could do a tracking block with you for two weeks, you know, over December. And I was like, oh my goodness, just taking like that 10 minutes just to be present and sit with that student made a really big difference. So I think your words really resonate resonate deep. So thank you for those, uh, those words. Thank you. And, and they, you know, they always are such a source of inspiration too, because of how much they want to make the world a better place and to make patient care better in a way that, um, makes us all want to be better. It's so true. They're still so innocent. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Yeah, they feel, I, I agree. They're inspiring on, on, bo- on both sides. I think there's studies looking at that with mentoring or coaching and that both sides benefit so deeply from these relationships. Yeah. All right, Helen, is there anything I'm missing? Is there anything else that you want to bring up or talk about this morning? No, I just really appreciate that you had me on this podcast because it's been so fun to talk about this with you. Absolutely. Your words are so incredibly important. And like I said, I think this resonates true for medical students, you know, residents and fellows. So thank you again for your time. And I'm sure we'll be, we'll be in touch soon and seeing your amazing work that you're putting out with this grant. So thank you for your investment in this really important topic. Thank you, Kara. Thank you so much. And that is all for this episode of Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed. Join us next episode for more expert insights and perspectives. From all of us at the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, thanks for listening. The opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the featured clinicians and do not necessarily reflect the views of CMR Surgical or included advertisers or sponsors.